Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, live at the Summer Jaguar Festival with Sir John Egan and a man who mechanics D-types in the 1950s. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, episode 55. And it's Wayne Scott with you. Hello. Hope you're well. And hope you enjoyed last weekend if you were lucky enough to be with us for the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage in Oxfordshire. Last Sunday, the 4th of July, what a day it was. The weather was changeable, it's fair to say, but it didn't matter. We all had an amazing time. As I looked out from the live stage, there were hundreds and thousands of smiley, cheery, happy faces enjoying just being together, to be honest, once again, and being out and enjoying cars at a proper show at last. We had over 300 E-Types celebrating the 60th anniversary of the model. We had a stunning display of Le Mans Jaguars celebrating 70 years since the first Le Mans win by Jaguar. And we had a live stage packed full of the celebrities from the world of Jaguar and beyond. And some really interesting people we met, some really interesting interviews, some of which we'll be able to share with you here on the podcast. Also, of course, on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club YouTube channel as well over the coming weeks. On this podcast episode, one of the highlights from the Summer Jaguar Festival 2021, recorded live on the live stage in front of a live audience, it was Sir John Egan, the man who saved Jaguar in the 1980s. That's coming up on this episode. But before I get to that, there were moments throughout the day at the Summer Jaguar Festival where I was able to leave the live stage and take my roving camera crew around around the show and especially to the paddock area. Now at Bista Heritage there is a test track and on that test track we had all sorts of amazing examples of Jaguar's history, some of which were supplied by the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust, some of which were our members' cars, either out on parade or giving high-speed passenger laps to those lucky enough to buy a ticket. I was able to go over and spend some time in that paddock, and at lunchtime we had a parade celebrating that momentous moment when Jaguar won Le Mans for the first time 70 years ago. To mark that, we not only had a C-Type driven by Adam Sykes out on track, but we also had RSF 303. Genuine Jaguar D-Type raced in period by a Curia Cos. It was built by the factory, was raced by the factory as well, but appeared on the day in its at last livery, the Curia Cos livery. I was just talking to the owner about that car when he introduced me to this very special person who I spoke to and you can hear next. This is David Seal, who was in the passenger seat of this D-Type cockpit when I went over and put a microphone into the driver's face to ask him how he was enjoying the laps out on track. He introduced me to David and let me know that David had worked on that car when it was new in the 1950s. My name's David Seal. I used to be a mechanic uh, in the early 50s, 53 through to 56, 57 and uh, I became a, a test driver, so I used to test these things as well as help make them. Some incredible memories surely oh, wrapped up yes, in that cockpit. Certainly, and, and this gentleman was a, an absolute gent. He heard me chatting to my daughter, who we were talking about it. He overheard and said, would you like a ride? Fantastic. And I, he took me down three circuits, three circuits. First time I've been in one since 1954. Amazing. And is it, as you remembered it, it's very cramped in there. 
It, it is, yes, but I, then I used to be a, a sort of skinny 21-year-old <laughs> and I could get in and out a bit quicker than uh, I'm, I'll very soon be 90. So, you know, it, it's all right getting in, but it's not so easy getting out when you're my age. <laughs> what memories have you got of the D-typing period? Were you aware at that time just what an icon this was becoming? Yes, ab absolutely, it, it, it was at the time. It just, uh, it was such a fantastic machine. Even then, you know, and they were winning Le Mans and winning most races that, that, that they were going in. Of course, Jaguar never quite the same at Le Mans after the big 1955 incident. So, Ecuria Cost would come through in the late 1950s to run the D-types for them. And an incredible thing that this car ran all the way into the early 1960s. It was quite aged by that point, but still yes. winning. It's amazing testament to it, isn't it? It could still, you know, in the right circumstances, still do 200 miles an hour, you know, in a straight line. And it's not much less than what they do now. Yeah. So it's amazing, really, to think that it's how long, 50, 60 years ago. <laughs> makes me realise how old I am. <laughs> well, uh, I think you've just uh, got many, many years younger climbing out of that. I can see the enjoyment it you've was, had. Oh, it was a delight. It really was. <laughs> What a fantastic story. What an amazing addition to the day. What an amazing surprise for me to get to interview him. David Seal there, who worked as a mechanic for Jaguar's D-Types on the Le Mans programme in the late 1950s. Just one of the many celebrities we had at the Summer Jaguar Festival 2021. Another one, of course, Sir John Egan. And his interview plays in just a moment's time after the Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. On this week's Hall of Fame, we pay tribute to a Formula One driver from Argentina who we lost this week. Carlos Reutemann, who died age 79. And uh, Richard, he comes really from the sort of playboy era of Formula One, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, Wayne. And it's sad to record yet the passing of another great man. Carlos Alberto Reutemann was born on the 12th of April in 1942 and was nicknamed Lole. Uh, he clearly was uh, a huge favourite with the Argentinian people and uh, latterly became a politician um, in his native province of Santa Fe. He actually was offered the opportunity to run for El Presidente, but something that he turned down. I never knew the reason for that. But uh, sadly, yes, a man who's led a great life, an incredible racing life and an incredible private and public life, uh, who, as you say, sadly say, we lost yesterday. And privacy was his thing, wasn't he? He was known at the time as being quite enigmatic. There wasn't a lot known about what he got up to away from the track. No, I, he was before my time at Williams. He was there 80, 81. But I remember being at a Silverstone test and watching him uh, walk down through the paddock towards what was then the, the, the motorhome, motor the Williams Winnebago, as it was in those early days. And he sort of had that aloofness walk about him which was you know don't approach me if I approach you I'm more than happy to have a chat but uh, he was a very private individual and I think that that shone through in his character on occasions if you look at a lot of photographs online of him in discussions with you know Colin Chapman or in discussions with Patrick Head or Frank Williams he's always got that very deep serious look on his face and I think that reflected his true character. 
He was known as being a kind of uh, enigmatic character, but one that uh, the lady swooned over because he had these kind of film star looks, didn't he? He did. He, his grandfather was Swiss German, and he had an Argentinian father with an Italian mother. He was tall. He was he was that lovely olive skin coloured, and, and and if if you can say he was a beautiful looking man. And of course, when he walked around the paddock with his overalls, you know, unzipped and his white t-shirt on underneath, there was many a lady <laughs> virtually swooned as she walked past him you know he managed three wins for williams in formula one but probably one of the most uh, famous drives that he ever did was the las vegas uh, grand prix where he basically had to beat nelson piquet uh, to win the title but it all went really wrong didn't it Yes, Patrick Head apparently once said that he felt that um, that his, his heart wasn't in it at one stage in his career. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, and I can't really personally comment on that. But he, he just, he, at times, his brilliance shone through. At times in the Ferrari and indeed in the Lotus, you know, drives that really set the world on fire. But that particular race, there was just something there that just didn't seem right. And I wouldn't say it was. It didn't seem like he didn't want the championship. I think people have said that, and I think that's completely wrong. But it was just one of those days when I just don't honestly think that he was he was mentally in gear for it. And of course, Nelson Piquet went on and won the championship ahead of him. Mm, and it was, of course, that uh, strange race where the heat took it out on so many of those drivers. Nelson Piquet himself um, nearly got into some serious medical trouble during that race. Mm. And yeah, anyone who uh, looks up the old race from back in the day, you can find the footage on YouTube, actually. You can see Nelson Piquet mm. sort of head flopping about in the cockpit. Um, he was barely mm. conscious, wasn't he, at that point, due to the dehydration. They, they didn't have the sort of systems in the cars in those days that that you see now with drivers being able to stay hydrated and stay cool and to to manage the impact on their body it was a real tough sport it's an interesting point you make um when we went to dallas uh, williams in 1984 slight diversion from talking about carlos but kathy rosberg was uh, trying out a a nasa inspired cool suit and it was like a nomex one-piece bodysuit with tiny water pipes that ran very close together all the way through it. And under the driver's, under Keke's seat, there was a little pump with uh, with ice-cooled water. And it was there also on the balaclava to try and keep them cool. And in fact, as you rightfully say, in a number of those early races in the closed cockpit Formula One cars, you know, when they were very, very tightly seated in those cars with triple-layer Nomex on, a number of drivers at a number of those races in places like Las Vegas and Dallas where the temperatures were so high, really did suffer. And in fact, it was Nigel Manson who got out of his car at Dallas and collapsed while trying to push the John Player Lotus across the line. Mm. So yeah, um, you go back to the Vegas race, it was a tough one and it was a miracle that... Uh, Nelson didn't have problems, medical issues after that race. Well, you mentioned Keke Rosberg there. Reutemann was a, a member of, with Keke Rosberg at Williams as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he was indeed. And in fact, going right back to his early career, uh, I think the first car he ever competed in was a Fiat, but then he got involved in European Formula 2 back in 1970. Uh, and he drove uh, at one point for the Motul Rondel racing team, which of course was the combination of uh, McLaren's Ron Dennis and also his partner at the time, Neil Trundle, who recently retired from McLaren. He then went to Formula One in 73, motor racing developments, Bernie Eccleston, of course, that name yet again, I think, cast across everybody's career from the 60s through until the, the, the noughties. And indeed, in 1973, he competed in the 24 Hours of Le Mans. He drove for Scuderia Ferrari 
And although he didn't finish that race, his name is up there on the entry list of uh, the Le Mans, Le Mans greats. Uh, in 74, he drove again for motor racing developments. And then, of course, he had a spell with uh, Ferrari. And he had time with Martini racing at Lotus. And he also raced in, this, in the late 70s in the BMW M1 Pro Car Championship for BMW Motorsport, which was uh, a championship that was conceived by BMW. But it really was an entry point again for Ron Dennis, whose team at the time built all of the pro cars and assisted in the running of that championship. He then got his big break in Formula One in 1980. Uh, he drove for the Albalad, uh, a sponsored Williams racing team, Albalad, a Middle Eastern construction company that really led towards uh, the introductions to the TAG group, who ultimately became the sponsors of Williams when he was driving for them in 81 and 82. Well, according to my little almanac of facts and figures and other geeky stuff, he drove 146 <laughs> races, had 45 podium finishes to his 12 wins, and finished, of course, as we mentioned, runner-up in the 1981 championship. And third in 75, when he was at Brabham as well. Um, a fantastic career. I think it's fair to say that he was one of the inconsistent drivers of history could be stunningly brilliant and then have a really grumpy bad day in the, in the seat and struggle mm. but um certainly mm. one of the uh, memorable and enigmatic characters in formula one of course that as you say went on to have a huge career in politics afterwards and a worthy addition to our hall of fame here on the jc podcast Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Uh, it's uh, a huge privilege to be sat on the stage with one of my heroes, and if you're into Jaguar, he'll be one of your heroes as well. He was CEO and chairman of Jaguar Cars between 1980 and 1990. And in that 10 years, he released Jaguar from the British Leyland grasp. It was sold to Ford afterwards, but the value increased from £300 million to £1.6 billion. I think this man knows a thing or two about rescuing companies like Jaguar. Please, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the man who saved Jaguar, Sir John Egan. Wonderful to have you here, Sir John. Um, is that a title that sits comfortable with you, the man who saved Jaguar? Well, certainly um, it had to be saved. Uh, MG had gone, Triumph was on its way, and I think if I hadn't turned up on the day I did, Jaguar would have gone as well. Tell us about the sort of welcome you had at Jaguar and just put us back in the picture of just how difficult things were at that time because um, you know we'd had Lofty England who had taken over he'd been unceremonious, unceremoniously kicked out after a year uh, a young guy Geoffrey Robinson had taken over who had some great ideas for Jaguar um, but then of course the Rider Report arrived rationalization was upon us you must have come to a company that was in the midst of some real turmoil. Yeah, I inherited large car assembly plant number two. Uh, the Jaguar name had been taken down and it was large British Leyland large car assembly plant number two. So they'd actually tried to 
gather strength from Jaguar, but actually uh, they were in the process of destroying it. Um, the chairman that I was, when I arrived, was a man called Percy Plant, and when things got into his hands, they were slow. Co they were sold off or closed down. Uh, he was the expert in doing that. So I realized when I arrived that I didn't have much time to sort things out. And when I did arrive on that day, they were on strike. Everybody was on strike. Uh, and it was about a very serious issue. Michael Edwards wanted to pay everybody for doing the same job, the same wage throughout British Leyland. And that meant the assembly workers at Jaguar were going to be paid the same as those at Longbridge. And when I w arrived at the factory gates, everybody was on strike, and I started talking to the strikers. And one of them, one of them really did strike me. He said, I've got my bag of tools here. Without these tools, these cars don't fit. He said, I'm a, I'm a craftsman at Longbridge. They, they're just fitters. And he said, British Leyland have done all these things to us. I don't want to work here anymore if that's what's going to happen to me. They've done everything else to us, and now they've done this. And so really, in a way, everybody was fed up of being owned by British Leyland, and they really didn't see any, any real future. And indeed, when I started talking to the shop stewards, I realized that the only thing on offer was me. I was saying, well, I've come here to save the place. I've come here to make it as independent as it deserves. That was the deal I'd done with Michael Edwards. I knew it couldn't run as part of British Leyland, but we couldn't get independence if we didn't earn it. And so we had to earn it. And I knew that the shop stewards might come along with me when they understood that in the end point, we might become independent again. A great insight there that actually, contrary to what a lot of the press reported at the time and the sort of story we get told now of um, staff that didn't care and were stood around braziers, actually, you can already hear when you arrived, there was a great sense of pride around Jaguar. Yes, I mean, I, I knew, I, I'd worked for British Leyland before. I'd, I'd created the Unipart business, which was all the parts businesses of all of the companies. And so I did understand, and at Jaguar I understood that there really was a pride of working for Jaguar. And I knew that when I could talk direct to the workforce, they would come with me and they would do their best to help the company survived. Incidentally, we had one thing, we had a couple of things going for us. One was Margaret Thatcher. She certainly wasn't going to stand for companies owned by the government going on strike. She just closed them down. I think everybody understood that. Michael Edwards was a tough guy, and he did what he said he'd do. But also, the Series 3 was a very beautiful improvement to the Series 2. And I felt it was almost like a new car. 
and we could almost take it as a new car into the United States. So I felt as a salesman there was a chance for this company because of that car. And of course Castle Bromwich where that car was being built had the history of building Spitfires during the Second World War. Uh, there's a story that perhaps a bit of a myth that uh, you turned up to Castle Bromwich and found that they were only able to spray the, the cars three colours and it was the beginning of the story of how you had to turn around some of the, the quality issues that were in the, within the production line at the time. It, it, was that the case? Yeah, but there's actually a rather more interesting story behind that. When Mike Beasley and I walked around Castle Bromwich, he said to me, do you notice there isn't a single black face in this workforce? And so when we met the plant director, we said, why are there no black faces here? Uh, we've got plenty of them at Browns Lane. Why is there nobody here? And he was very uncomfortable. He said, well, the unions don't send any up here. Uh, they don't allow us to employ any black people. So, well, we said to, we said, bring the shop stewards in then. And we said to him, look, you're going to have to make a choice here. It's us or it's the police. If we bring the police in, you're all going to prison because it's illegal to bar black people from the workforce. And uh, we, will, we will certainly bring them here. So you're going to have to choose right now. And actually, they chose to go with us rather than the police. And actually, it became fairly quickly uh, probably the easiest plant for us to run. Let's talk about some of the models that sort of uh, were icons of your era, I guess. And I guess it really starts with um, that Series 3 XJ6, but also the XJ40, because that XJ40 was waiting in the wings, wasn't it, for quite some time. What was the decision behind postponing that launch? Well, the XJ40 was sort of under design when I got there. And I used it as a symbol of hope for the future. I said, look, to the shop stewards, if you don't help me this, get this company to survive, I'm not going to ask for any money from the government to invest in a new model. So the XJ40 was a symbol of hope. But we really didn't have time to wait for the XJ40. We had to make a success of the XJ6. Uh, and it, the Series 3 was a really very good development of the Series 2. It was a really beautiful improvement. And, uh, and I felt if we could make it work, because it had 18 faults per car in its first year of uh, ownership, and versus, I mean, other cars had faults too. I mean, a Mercedes would have had four or five faults. So we had to go from 18 faults per car down to four or five to make the car saleable. And that in itself was a, a story because it wasn't just but Jaguar's problems. Half the problems we bought in from our outside suppliers. So we had to do a huge job with our suppliers to make improvements. And I took on the worst five suppliers myself. And it was, every one was a different story. But uh, the worst one had a fault rate of 40% of the failures in the first year of warranty. What an incredible problem that was. 
But still, we managed to cure, cure it. We managed to fix it. We, but every single one of those fault codes, and there were 150 of them, had to be fixed to get us down to four or five faults per car. And of course, while you were taking control of quality control with the road cars, the XJS I mentioned because it was during your era that the relationship with Tom Walkinshaw Racing came about. That won the uh, European Touring Car Championship. And I think anyone who looks back on that moment in history now can see the change that that made to what was initially a faltering model. The XJS had a, a bit of a stillbirth, hadn't it, because of the engine and the fuel crisis that you'd had to endure. That race win made all the difference. Was, from the very beginning, motorsport really important to your strategy? Yes, motorsport was extremely important. It, it had helped to create the original Jaguar. And in putting Jaguar back together again, I knew there had to be a place for racing. And it was at the Geneva Motor Show that I met Jackie Stewart. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, I know of uh, someone who can help you. And his, name is, and his name is Tom Walkinshaw. And this tornado came into my office about three or four weeks later, explaining that the XJS was a magnificent potential race car, which at great cost could win the European Touring Car Championship. And I said to him, but uh, Tom, I don't have any money. So he, he said, that's not much of a problem, but I'll find the money. And between us, we found enough money to get started. And I paid him on the basis of winning. He got £20,000 to win and £10,000 if he was third. It was, uh, and it was a magnificent racing car, was the XJS. It was a magnificent car. And with that V12 engine, which, as we developed it, it got better and better and better. Uh, eventually, when, he, when we won Le Mans, it was developing over 800 horsepower, which was uh, a heck of a thing for a basically a production engine. The link between the touring car and obviously the production XJS is an obvious one, but in order to win Le Mans, you had to go into Group C, and those are prototype cars. Now, obviously, Bob Tullius over in America had been doing great things for the Jaguar brand already. Um, that very famous moment in 1984 where Group 44 came over with those IMSA-spec race cars, um, did you ever consider that Group 44 might be the guys for the job, or was it the fact that TWR were based in the UK, that, that's what gave them the edge, made them more important at the time? Well, it was a very... As soon as we were privatised and I got rid of British Leyland, I felt as though we could invest enough money in into racing to actually win Le Mans. And I gathered everybody together, Tom Walkinshaw and Bob Tullius from the States and all of the guys who knew about racing, and we tried to come to a decision. Did we develop a new car or did we give the IMSA car to Tom for him to develop it for Le Mans and have two teams? Anyway, eventually, he, Tom said he'd give it a try, but he went with the car uh, to, see, um, to see the guys at Williams. Uh, Williams had, we, we knew the Williams people really quite well, and they were very interested in working with Jaguar. And when, when, he, went to see, when he went to see them, 
he made a very interesting point. He said the IMSA car developed by uh, Bob Tullius was already was already two or three years old, um, and a space frame car had been made by Porsche for the last ten years. They'd always be ten years ahead of us. The only way we could beat Porsche was basically to have a Formula One car. And so what we had to do was to use Formula One engineering. And that had to be done in the UK. And that's in a way, Tom came to see me and he said, I don't want to do the IMSA, it's a waste of time. If we want to win, we have to start from scratch and build a Formula One car around the, v around the V12 engine. And that's what we did. And it was a, a magnificent job for our engineers because Tom only had enough engineering to do about half the job or two-thirds of the job. We had to do a lot of it ourselves. The engine we had to do ourselves, the brakes and things like that. So our engineers were already involved in sort of world-class activity, which is good for them. If they're going to build world-class cars, they really have to learn somewhere. And I thought racing was one place to start. Just talking about the subject brings me up in goosebumps, I have to say. And, and to think that we're sat here in Bicester and just a few miles over there is Kidlington where Tom Walkinshaw Racing was based when they built all of those cars. It was a three-year programme, wasn't it? 87 was a tough year at Le Mans uh, with reliability issues for a lot of the cars. Porsche uh, pipped the team that year. But in 1988, of course, Famously, the number two car brought it home for Jaguar uh, with Jan Lammers, Andy Wallace uh, uh, at the wheel. Um, tell us your memories of being stood, because you were there, weren't you, at Le Mans? Oh, tell us your memories of that moment when you saw Jaguar <laughs> win Le Mans. It must have been incredible. Yeah, it was. Uh, we knew we had a good chance. We were taking five cars over there two that were racing in the US and three that were racing in Europe. So we had five teams there. So we felt as though we were going with enough horsepower. Obviously, Porsche had two or three themselves, but there were always a number of privateers working with, uh, with Porsche. So we felt taking five cars gave us a chance. Um, the, the, the difficulty that we always had, however, was um, developing the experience of a team to win such a... It's, it's, so, it's so difficult to get the teamwork together. And I remember um, it was very interesting watching the various teams of drivers working together to work how to win. Uh, and I was very impressed with, um, with the team that won. Um, it was Jan Lammers who was the leader of the team, and he walked, he walked the three drivers around the course and they agreed how they were going to drive. And it was a, it's attention to detail, the, the sort of stuff that year after year after year Porsche had been winning, but we had to learn all of that. And we'd failed a couple of times, but now we really had the horsepower to win. We must mention the third driver in that winning car in 1988, Johnny Dumfries, of course, who we lost earlier this year, very sadly. Um, when you got home on Monday morning from Le Mans that year, there is the old saying that was coined way back in the 1950s, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Did you sit back and think, wow, we've got to live up to this reputation now? Was that a genuine challenge at the time? 
Uh, gosh, no. Um, I, I just was busy. <laughs> and I, I think every single year at Jaguar, that I was there for 10 years, every single year had its crisis. There was nothing, no, at no time would you say that this was a steady state. Uh, in 1988, already, uh, Ford were starting to nose around and they were starting to kick the tires and and we were, we, we'd started to think we really did need a partner in the big league if we were going to develop the technologies for the future. Our choice was Toyota. We felt that they would be sufficiently far away that they might invest in us and share their technology with us. I don't know whether news of this had got through to Ford, but they were already starting to be quite aggressive about their relationship with us. And so it was, I felt as though Ford would not be capable of working with us. I, I felt that they would just simply have to run it as part of Ford. So I was really quite antagonistic to the idea and was all, all the way through. Um, but already that was beginning to be a problem. So every year had its crisis and that was 1988 was that crisis. Having taken Jaguar from the grip of British Leyland, um, it's clear talking to you now that the mission always had to be to get Jaguar independent and, and to, to think for itself and, and to work for itself. Was it a difficult decision then 10 years later to stare a Ford takeover in the face? Was, did it sort of go against what you felt you'd done already? I was, I was mortified. I really did feel as though I'd failed because I felt that, that Ford would not be a satisfactory owner. Sure, they spent an awful lot of money uh, at Jaguar, losing money and investing in... in, in um, it was a, let me tell you a tiny little story. After they'd bought Jaguar, the, um, the new chairman, because the old chairman that had bought Jaguar was sort of pushed out, and the new man was a guy called Red Poling. And when I went over to Detroit, he drew me into his office. He seemed to be the only person interested in talking to me. And he said to me, say, John, how am I going to tell my shareholders I've uh, spent five times asset value on buying a car company? He said, I don't think there's a single car company in the world worth its assets. And I've just paid five times the asset value for Jaguar. And I said to him, Red, when I was taught to be a salesman, I was taught to sell the sizzle not the sausage. You've got $500 million worth of sausage here, but you have $2 billion worth of sizzle. And if you don't understand sizzle, you shouldn't buy Jaguar. You shouldn't have bought Jaguar. Now, the one company in the world that did not understand sizzle was Ford. They just sold sausages. They just don't understand sizzle. And uh, he was shaking his head in disbelief. But anyway, it, 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 the, the, the thing about a Jaguar is it's got to have more to it than just sausage. It's got to have sizzle as well. You have to try and make a better car than anybody else in the world has made. Otherwise, you shouldn't try to make Jaguars. When you look back on your 10 years at the helm of Jaguar, um, 
when you look back on the responsibility you had for something that is an integral part of British motor history, are there things, as you look through the wonderful thing of hindsight, that you would have done differently sat here today? When you look back, is there anything, any one moment you, you, you wish you'd taken a slightly different decision, perhaps? Yeah, there were two, at least two, where I felt as though I'd made a mistake. At one stage, BMW wanted to buy Jaguar. And I got on very well with the chairman of BMW, a man called von Kunheim. And he came over all on his own, and he just sat me in his office, and he told me what he wanted to do. So I sat in my office and told me what he wanted. And I, I felt, and it was early on, it was only sort of three or four years into the turnaround, and I felt as though there was no end to what we could do. And I said, if you buy it, you might buy it without the management. And he said he wasn't going to do that. And I think that might have been a mistake. I think they might have been a very good owner. Uh, they've certainly done very well with the Mini. And they could have, I think they did understand luxury cars. And they did understand uh, about the luxury car business. I think the second mistake I probably made was the Series 3 was selling very well. And I had privatized the company, so I now was able to make a decision. I privatized the company because, incidentally, at the time we did, because BL wanted to launch the XJ40 back in 1984. That's two years before we did launch it. And it wasn't ready. I mean, it was certainly not. The engineering wasn't up to the standard of a Jaguar. So I said we should privatize before we launched the XJ40. But when we privatized, I wasn't sure whether to start again. Because the whole technique of design of cars had changed. Um, in 1984, you designed them on a computer before you started. You didn't try and do bits here and there. We designed XJ40 in the old-fashioned sense, and then we had to sort of bring modern, modernity into our styling and to our ideas and all the rest of it. And I always felt as though I should have started again. By the way, the person who persuaded me not to start again was actually Bill Lyons. He said, no, you don't need to. It's a perfectly good car. This is exactly the right car uh, from a styling point of view. But of course, he could rely on a team of fantastic engineers underneath him who'd always made these cars. So he didn't really bother much about what went on inside it. It was actually the style, which was to him the key. So he persuaded me that the car was fit to go. And rather reluctantly, we then proceeded because I was, and I kept putting it off because I was really quite frightened. Actually, in the end, we didn't do a bad job, but we, 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 we could have done better. Did you have a good relationship with Sir William Lyons as oh, you yes. were on through? Because you're he, both Lancastrians, aren't you? <laughs> you're both oh, Lancastrians, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, he was, um, he, he was always anxious to see me. When I used to get to Wappenbury Hall, he'd, he'd have the sherry out and, we'd be, and he'd have his list of stuff he wanted to talk about. We gave him free access to the styling studios. And it was interesting, when he went into the styling studio, he lost 20 or 30 years in age. He was quite determined when he was in there. And he was quite old when he was outside it, but in there. 
I remember saying I didn't really know whether we were right to go for the rectangular headlamp on the XJ40. And he just turned to me and he said, but I am. And it was interesting. <laughs> he, he was really quite tough-minded, even at that age, to... Yeah, he knew what he wanted, and, and he thought the car was right. Well, I saw an XJR XJ40 coming in the entry road this morning as we were warming up the stage here, and I agree with him. I think absolutely right to go with that stance. But by the way, one of the other things that I was really proud of was the XJS, because they'd stopped making them when I arrived in 1980, and we sold 10,000 in 1990. So it was a very successful uh, sports car, and of course, a fantastic racing car. And of course, back then, Jaguar were running these TWR road cars as well, which were it's something that's commonplace in the motor industry now to have a third-party tuning house build, Mercedes do it very well, build your, your sported-up cars. Was, did that feel like a, an integral part in following up on that motorsport heritage that you were building at the time then? Yes, I, I felt that there was value added with all of the association with racing. And um, certainly, um, you know, with the V12 engine, racing it at Le Mans and putting it into a road car. For example, there were guys in Florida who were turning up at the dealership as though they'd won Le Mans themselves. Uh, you know, it was, it was a real connection. And of course, BMW had been very good at doing that, and I felt as though that was something that between us and Tom Walkinshaw, we could do. We have a new man at the helm of Jaguar now, Thierry Bellori. If you were called into his office, you might have been, I don't know, uh, but if you were called into his office and he asked for your advice on where to take Jaguar now, as we sit here in 2021, what would you say to him? Well, I think he's already made uh, some very interesting points, and I think one of them is that it's, it's a luxury car, and it should always have that luxury end of it. It's interesting that um, in the XJ series, they never quite got, they didn't quite get it right. We, 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 the, um, the, the, the XF and the XE, okay, they're turning into luxury cars, but they didn't start off that. And I think that losing the XJ as a, as a volume car was a mistake. Um, so I think the luxury end you should be part of. You can't run away from that if you're Jaguar. So I would concentrate on making luxury cars. Must be a proud moment for you as well as we look over the, all the display cars over there on the field across those beautiful E-types. There's a huge number of XJSs, Series 3 XJ6s, XJ40s, of course all the cars that then followed in the Ford era uh, after you had secured Jaguar's existence. Do you still feel a sense of pride looking out over that vista in front of us? Oh, I feel an enormous sense of pride. I think, uh, you know, this was worth saving. This was a, a wonderful thing. And uh, I, I was brought up in Coventry. My parents moved to Coventry when I was still 14 or so and I felt the idea of Jaguar going out of business was so was so terrible that I had to do what I could to save it and so I felt as though uh, I'd done a good thing in actually enabling the, the company to survive. Well, I think everyone here would agree with you. He's certainly done a good thing. And the fact that Sir John Egan worked so hard between 1980 and 1990 to release Jaguar from the grip of British Leyland, to develop those new models as he's now described, and to 
push it forward into its new era is the fact it gives us the fact that we're all here to enjoy the Jaguars today and uh, be together and enjoy wonderful cars. So I think for that, it deserves a really big round of applause to Sir John Egan, the man who saved Jaguar. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Just arrived up at Castle Coombe and the weather is absolutely torrential rain. So um, I've been keeping a close eye on the weather app and it seems like it's going to be changeable all day, as we said in last week's episode. So I'm not going to do anything with the car. We're just getting set up and we're going to put the gazebo and stuff. Stop us getting absolutely soaked. Um, and then we're going to leave it right till the last minute to decide whether we change setups. Um, we're not qualifying to 12. There's a lot of sessions out before us. So if the weather does change and it does dry up and there's no further rain, the track generally will dry pretty quick with a lot of cars, um, especially as that some of the GT cars are out with some aero, etc. That it seems to suck a lot of the water away when they're out on track. So we're going to leave it to the last minute, but it is at the moment looking like it's going to be wet. But we'll see. Um, it is what it is. We're not qualifying until 12, and that's the only track activity we've got today. Both of the races are on Sunday tomorrow, and it is looking interchangeable then. So I think it's going to be one of those weekends where we're just not going to know until last minute before we go out. We can change the car very quickly to a wet setup if we need to, but at the moment we're just going to leave it exactly where it is and just monitor it and see where we go from there onwards. I'm just sat in the car on the assembly area ready for qualifying. Um, believe it or not, it is looking dry, so we've stayed with a dry setup on the car. Um, it's very cloudy, so it could change whilst we're out there, but the track is 100% dry. There's been a lot of qualifiers out. They're all on slicks, um, which is obviously a great sign that it is dry. Um, and I'm sat queuing up waiting to go. So I've got um, quite a few cars in front of me. I actually missed the, the call for the uh, um, to bring us down to assembly area, which is a little bit frustrating. I like to try and get out first and get a lap in quickly, but um, we're probably going to get a little bit of traffic out there, but we'll see what we can do. Um, I'm sat behind Mike Seaborn, I've got Derek in front of me, which are both quick cars, so um, we'll sit in behind them, get some heat in the tyres, and I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to play it, whether I try and uh, hold back and then get a lap in, or I might just go for it straight away and see if I can get a lap in quite quickly. Um, I'll be able to see that from the car, I'll run a lap timer in the car so I can see exactly what's going on. I know roughly where we normally are. Um, I know a 118 is, is a quick time round here. That was where we were last time we raced here, which was, God, I think that was three years ago now. So um, I know roughly we should be around that and I know I can beat that here um, when we've tested. So I know we've found a fair bit of time in the car this year. So fingers crossed, um, let's get out there. Hopefully it stays dry and let's see what we can do. Well, I'm still absolutely buzzing after that qualifying session. Um, I just set a PB of mine round Castle Coombe, which was a 116 flat nearly. It was a, a 116.050, which is just absolutely amazing, just when we needed to do it. And it was on lap two as well, which has put us in pole for race one. So that's exactly the result we wanted. Um, and I'm just relieved, to be honest with you, especially being my home circuit. So um, obviously we've still got two races to do, but that's uh, given us the best chance around Castle Coombe, um, especially as it's such an awkward place to overtake. Um, looking at lap times, James qualified in second um, behind me and we're nearly 
well, it's nearly a full two seconds clear on James. I know um, he'll find some time in the race, but um, that's just an absolute great result for us to be so dominant, especially in qualifying. Um, guys in third, and we've also got Holty in fourth. So, um, yeah, really, really excited now for race one. Um, just got to make sure tomorrow that I can get off the line. Um, but car was, was absolutely faultless. Um, I'm probably going to just change the damper settings very slightly. Um, I just felt that it could be a little bit stiffer on the rear, only a small adjustment there. Um, it did stay dry for the whole qualifying session. Um, so we didn't have any rain whatsoever, although it was quite cloudy. Um, but same again for tomorrow. We're going to have to play it by ear, change the setup last minute if we have to. Managed to finish with a win off the race one, which I'm just absolutely relieved about, to be honest with you. I was so determined to have a win here at my home circuit. And uh, yeah, we, we've got it. And just absolutely over the moon with that result. Um, I pushed really, really hard early on. Got a good start. Got way off the line, which is is a bit of a test in the XJR with um, so much torque with a supercharged car, but managed to get away with James and we were leading going into quarry, um, which is just absolutely brilliant. I stayed on the inside um, and pushed really hard early on. And we actually um, managed to get gap James quite considerably. Um, I think I actually managed to stay in the 116s, um, looking at lap times for about six laps, which, um, which just gave us that breathing space um, so we finished up with about a 12 second lead um, at the end which is just unheard of James is normally pressurizing me continually um, so I'm really pleased that we've come so far with the car and been able to get it set up so well around Coombe especially as I keep saying it's my home circuit so I've got a little bit of a um, soft spot for this place um, just being that it's just down the road from us so yeah really really pleased with that result um, Matthew also ended up second in class so that's a great result for him so it couldn't gone any better to be honest um, so race two's not till five o'clock this afternoon um, we had a complete dry race um, for race one but I'm pretty confident it's going to be wet for race two now as all of you probably know, I've said about this before, James is a bit of a master in the wet, so um, we've got to see if we can uh, keep him at bay for race two. Well, for me, that's top race one result. Um, we had another win, um, and it wasn't full wet, but it was wet. So for me, that's just a tick in the box to be able to beat James Ram in the wet. It's something that I've never been able to do, so I'm just really, really, really pleased. It's just been an absolute epic weekend for us. Um, we managed all three wins um, and quickest lap times in, in both races as well, which it just couldn't have gone any better. Um, it was quite a challenge. I had a bit of a struggle getting off the line in the wet. Um, James um, and Colin actually got quite a quite a lead on me actually going into the first corner. Also, Tom Lemphill got past me off the start. Um, just kind of misjudged it, to be honest, and then um, sort of hesitated. I started rolling forward before the lights were released. And then when I actually did, I just just, just wheel span, to be honest with you. So it was, it was my own fault. Um, managed to get past Tom actually going into quarry. Managed to break quite late and uh, stay on the inside. It was, it was actually a dry line round quarry. So I managed to stay on the dry stuff um, and be able to get past him. I also then managed to get past Colin going down, breaking into tower. Um, I was just really brave on the break, so I'm glad I managed to get past him quickly because I could see James in the distance. I'd already actually pulled about two car lengths straight away. Um, so I just wanted to get past Colin as quickly as possible so that I could try and uh, reel James back in. And I actually managed to um, get a really good run on James coming into quarry. 
couldn't quite get past him on the brakes. James was really late on the brakes into there and I just couldn't get the car to grip doing that. But I managed to run it quite wide into quarry and I stayed on the um, the outside line. I managed to, to cut the corner back to get a really good drive to pass him going into the brakes on the chicane, which I was just absolutely relieved about that I managed to get it stopped in time for the chicane because I really, really pushed hard to get past him. And it was uh, it was started to rain at this point, so there was quite a few dry lines, um, but it stayed just continually um, drizzling really through the whole race. Um, and uh, I managed to to gap James initially, but he started catching me back up as it was getting wetter. Um, as I was coming out the corners, I was losing a fair bit of traction, um, but I was able to to sort of start to build the gap back up again and maintain that gap. Um, but I was just continually monitoring it. Then, then luckily for me, James actually made a mistake going into quarry um, and he touched the grass. So I ended up with a really comfortable lead in the end uh, and we bought it home. And I'm just, yeah, as I said, that one for me is just absolutely top of the season, beating James in such poor conditions. Um, so it was just an absolute cracking weekend. Well, congratulations to Tom there on his amazing win. Also, though, out on track at Castle Coombe last weekend was Matthew Davis. We spoke to him on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. He is the managing director of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. He had that terrible incident in the opening race at Silverstone of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship, where his XJR actually caught fire on the start-finish line at the beginning of the race. He's since been racing, as Tom has alluded to many times, the Swallows Jaguar XJ40, and he was out at Castle Coombe, just getting some more learning laps in. Sunday morning, um, and I'm trundling across the Cotswolds to Castle Coombe. And it's a weird weekend this weekend because so far this season, we've sort of done everything in a day. So we've got in early, done qualifying at sort of nine or 10 in the morning, then had a race about 12 o'clock and then another race in the afternoon. So it's all sort of done and dusted in a day. But at this meeting, um, we all went over to Castle Coombe on Saturday for our quality. And um, then it's back again at midday for first race. So it's sort of stretched out a bit. Um, it, 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 it was a weird quality this time. I, I was um, Billy Blue Flag, I think is the only way to describe myself. I just would start cracking on on a lap and then find I was blue flagged and had to pull over and it just cost seconds every time and uh, just couldn't get out of the 128s and when you think Tom in his supercharged beasties up there at 116 it's a huge gulf between me the last class A car and Tom the fastest class D car it's a big difference so um, I'm just adjusting to getting out of the way really um, but anyway it, it's it was a good day because the rain held off and as I sort of cross the Cotswolds now it's quite a leaden sky I don't know if it's going to rain when we when we go on track at 12 so let's wait and see but anyway I'll be at the back of the grid uh, I won't be in anyone's way we're just Jaguars today so we haven't got the pre-83 cars in the mix with us so um, yeah I'll come back to you after race one is done wish me luck well uh that's the first race done and uh it was hot work and um i was at the back of the grid last guy and just 
got away nice and clean and and sort of held in there with the other back markers for the first lap and then they just started stretching away from me but um i kept going and a couple of cars went off and a few yellow flags and it was all sort of happening and then um i i just kept it on the track didn't go and get in the way of anyone kept myself clear waved through the fast boys and um sort of tried to make sure that people didn't have to wave too many blue flags at me um but just seemed to sort of settle into a steady 130 a lap um which i just feel should be a lot quicker than that i've got a lot to learn but i got home no dramas didn't get anyone's way didn't break anything didn't spin off didn't burst into flames and um I'm quite pleased with that, really. It's just all about learning, I suppose, and and I've learned a lot again today. And the car, the lovely old Black Pearl, the XJ40, just such a nice car and so easy to drive and so dependable so far. It's been great. Anyway, uh, so it's about lunchtime, and um, we've got another race, I think, about half five, so we've got a bit of a wait now. And uh, I'll come back and tell you how that went. Wow. So second race, second race done. And that was quite, <laughs> quite an experience. So we um, were watching the weather radar carefully. And this big dark cloud came across. And we got a little sprinkling of rain. Really greasy surface. And um, it was, it was just tricky just not nice being out there and um as usual i was doing my steady at the back bit and um after i don't know probably six seven laps i think uh, i i got lapped by tom who's just looking unbeatable this weekend and james ram sort of chewing at his heels and the two of them went absolutely flying into quarry together and I think James just saw an opportunity just to kind of be a bit late, late on the brakes and go after Tom. And uh, off he went, absolutely wrapped up in foam, tyres everywhere. Um, quite exciting to watch from my little steady seat. Um, anyway, I kept plugging away. Um, I, th- I think Tom uh, kept, it a, kept it going and I think James managed to come back to third from there, which is extraordinary. Hell of a drive. Um, and then on my last lap, I then had a pirouetting Richard uh, just coming out to tower. Somehow he lost it at tower and it just went all over the shop. And um, and I found myself just sort of avoiding this spinning XJS in front of me and almost came to a stop just getting out of his way. So I'm going to look at that footage, see how that comes over. But god it was exciting and very slippery and tricky in places it was sort of dry and you get confident then it you get little slippy bits which just gave you a bit of a shock but anyway uh good news is uh, uh that there were only two cars out in the end and i managed to come come home safely to get another bit of silverware and very kindly in the first race i was given driver of the day for basically not getting in everyone's way I think and not sort of becoming a nuisance so I've got some lovely Maguire's polishes which will help me get the burn marks off my car but um, 
it looks like um, that, that's not going to be ready for a bit longer. So the good old XJ40s serve me well. Um, two more races finished and uh, a really good weekend. So thanks to everyone. And uh, I won't be at Brands. I've got to go off and do other stuff, but looking forward to Cadwell already. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. Thank you.